come now to the preaching of the Word of God, and I invite you all to open your Bibles in the book of Esther. We keep, our, keep going on our series in the book of Esther. We, cup, we pick up where we left last week, which was the ending of chapter 2. Today we're going to break up a little bit of the, go over a division of chapters, so we're going to read from chapter 2, verse 19, to chapter 3, verse 6. The ending of two, the beginning of three. And we keep going through this series. And we pray this morning, especially, that the familiarity that we all have with the story wouldn't be in the way of us learning from our God and hearing from His Word. Esther chapter 2, beginning in verse 19 until 3 6. Receive this with faith. This is the Word of God for us. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people, as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai, just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. After this, these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and sat his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. What would you do if you knew in detail the consequences of each of your actions? If you knew precisely what will happen in the future due to whatever is happening right now. For example, how would you live in this world if you could foresee that a pig crossing a road would lead to the creation of modern democracy? Bear with me. The year is 1131, and Louis VI, King of France, has two sons. Philip, the eldest, 
was the heir to the throne and was being prepared for it. At the same time, the youngest, without further prospects, Louis VII, he pursued a religious vocation by living in a monastery. One day, then, at the tender age of 15, Philip, the older one, was riding his horse with some friends when, says medieval historian Walter Mapp, his running horse was stripped by a black pig which darted out of a dung heap at the side of the road. Prince Philip fell head first, died the next day, and his father had no option but to appoint Louis VII his heir. Louis VII became king eventually, but his plans for a religious life to which he was being prepared for his whole life influenced the rest of his royal career. First, by being very religious and now in power, he was close to the Pope, and he was soon convinced to take the French army into a crusade, the second one, which was a total disaster. Thousands and thousands of people died, Jerusalem was lost, and personally to Louis, it caused a significant strain in his marriage. Second, and also related to the monastic upbringing, it brought another problem. Louis VII was married to Eleanor of Aquitaine, famous for saying, quote, she had thought to, ma to marry a king, only to find she had married a monk. Louis' ascetic training did not help him to produce a male heir, and eventually Eleanor divorced him. Eleanor then married Henry II, king of England, and bore him five sons, and one of them, John, succeeded his father. King John was so bad, so terribly bad at being a king, that the nobles of his court drafted a document that would put limits to his royal power. That document, later known as the Magna Carta, it's considered by most scholars as the most influential document for the ideals of modern democracies. One politician once described it as the foundation of the freedom of the individual against the arbitrary authority of the despot. All I'm saying is that we can vote and we can resist tyrants in the West partly because of a black pig darting out of a dung heap. Again, then, what would you do if you could know the future consequences of acts in the present with such a level of detail? Would you live differently if you knew which decisions now bring the most fruit in the future? Would you behave differently tomorrow morning at your job if you knew that some words could bring harm to you and your family? Would understanding the consequences of your actions change and affect how you balance your life in the empire and your allegiance to the kingdom of God? Today, we finally meet in our text the last main character of our story of the book of Esther, the antagonist, so to speak. And as we see how our protagonists deal with a particularly petty imperial bureaucrat, we begin to see how the theme of God's silent providence impacts our lives right now.
The big question then is, should knowing that God is in control of everything change the way we live in this world? Today, the Spirit of God will show us from Esther 2 and 3 that God calls us to do what is right, no matter what consequences we may face. Again, God calls us to do what is right, no matter what consequences we may face. We'll see that in two points this morning. The first one is we must do what is right, even if we're not rewarded for it. We must do what is right, even if we're not rewarded for it. We will see that from verse 19 until 3.1. Quick review for those who are not here last week. Mordecai, a Jewish man living in Susa, and his orphan cousin Esther get involved in the horrible affairs of the Persian Empire when Esther is taken captive to the newly inaugurated harem for Ahasuerus the king. There, through passive suffering and active currying of favors, as we saw last week, Esther is made now queen of Persia. At the beginning of our text today, we find Mordecai sitting at the emperor's gate. We should note at this point that this phrase does not simply mean hovering like a tourist at the outside gates of the White House. Sitting at Ahasuerus gate meant holding a formal office in his cabinet. Mordecai is a public servant of the highest level, working at the palace of the king of the world. The text does not give us much detail, it moves along fast, but we soon discover together with Mordecai that two eunuchs are plotting to kill Ahasuerus. In a world where the emperor can claim the bodies of young girls for his harem and the boys to make them eunuchs, it shouldn't surprise us that some employees were less than happy with their boss. But Mordecai also acts quickly. He sends a message to Esther, who he lays it to Ahasuerus, who forwards it to the PBI, the Persian Bureau of Investigation. And in less than three Bible verses, Big Than and Teresh have their heads kindly separated from their shoulders. And these affairs, as it would be usual in the kingdom of Persia, are duly recorded in the book of the Chronicles of the King, which was a list of all the king's benefactors who, following Persian custom, should be well recompensed for their noble behavior for the cause of the empire. Knowing that, when the original readers of the book of Vesture got to verse 1 of chapter 3, after these things King Ahasuerus promoted they would be astonished not to read, of course, Mordecai the Jew. What we find instead is Haman? The Agagite? Who? And you realize that if divine providence has been frowning upon Mordecai and Esther so far in the book, when it finally looks like they're going to catch a break and see a smile, we find another even grumpier frown. And we have to ask ourselves, is Mordecai being punished for seeking the good of a king 
who again, whose name in Hebrew sounds like pain in the head, and whose actions caused way more than just a mild headache to Mordecai and his family, is he being punished? Is that how Yahweh, the God of the Jews, deals with his servants who live in exile? Like many of us, all of us identify with them? Are we supposed to get to the higher ground and say to Mordecai a mouthful, I told you so? Let me tell you a personal story that might help us find some answers to these questions. At my last year at Westminster Seminary, I got an outstanding grade on a particularly challenging exam. And that was a big surprise for me, given how little I had studied for that exam. So I went and took a look at the grading, and it turns out my suspicions were right, and I had not done that well. The teaching assistant had messed up the grading. And I thought, well, it's just a handful of points. I'll tell the professor. He'll probably just tell me to, you know, have those points. You are honest. And even if he does not, I mean, it's four or five points out of a hundred. I should be fine. As it turned out, the professor, after thanking me, yes, for my honesty, not only took those points off, because it was the right thing to do, but he had his TA grade my exam again, and even more points were taken off. <laughs> In less than three Bible verses, I went from a surprising A to a depressing B plus, B minus. Which, if you think about it, was the right outcome. Correct? So how come I was not happy with it? <laughs> I found myself thinking afterward, would I have done the right thing if I knew I would lose those many points? Should Mordecai have done what he did for the good of the king if he knew he would not be rewarded? You see, when the people of Judah went into exile many years before this story, God told them through Jeremiah the prophet that he would, that exile would last for a while. They should not then simply sit around grumbling and mumbling. They were to live in obedience to him, even in exile. And as we read in the famous passage of Jeremiah 29, they were to seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. This is what Mordecai is doing. He knows that as bad as Ahasuerus is, and he is bad, an empire without its ruler, it's even worse. Their situation was dire, yes, but chaos and confusion as the Persians killed each other to sit on the vacant throne would be way worse. Mordecai was following Jeremiah, seeking the welfare of Susa, for in it he would have some measure of welfare too even if that meant he would not be recompensed for it. And I believe this leads us to think about our own situations right now 
leaving out in the empire as we go on with our lives tomorrow morning. Because maybe so far in the series of Esther, you might have thought to yourself, what do I do now? I am trying not to assimilate. I am trying not to fall into despair. But I'm only a school teacher, a nurse, a house builder. What difference can I make? Sisters and brothers, let me tell you. When you are outside these walls during the week, doing whatever you are called to do, you do it well for the welfare of the city that God has put you in. For in that, you will find welfare. Mordecai was not recompensed for his actions, but he did them anyway. Those who know the end of this book know this will all play out for good in the future. Yet, as we do not see the end of our own stories and we wonder if we're going to get recompense for it, this is some guidance on how to act. Do what you are given to do and do it well. For you do it for the welfare of the kingdom and for the good of God's people living in it. No matter how small you think your job or your calling or your vocation is. But what if the empire asks me to do something I can't? Something I know is a sin. What should I do when allegiance to the empire and its welfare means denying the values of the kingdom? This is what we'll investigate in our second point. We must do what is right, even if we have to pay for it. We must do what is right, even if we have to pay for it. We'll see that from verses 2 to 6 in chapter 3. As you see in our text, Mordecai's reward never came. Instead, the king promotes this new guy we never heard of, Haman the Agagite, to a place above all those not-so-bright fellas that used to surround him. Maybe he was paranoid because of the assassination plot and decide, decided to tighten even more his inner circle. We don't know. We know there's a new guy in charge, and the king, and the king commands all servants to bow to him. Again, the emperor says, bow, and you say, how low? But not Mordecai. Mordecai won't bow to Haman, and it becomes noticeable. And people start asking questions. Hey, Mord, why are you not bowing? Is everything okay? Mord, Mord, they whisper, heads down to the standing Mordecai. Soon the gossip spreads, as it usually does, and Haman becomes aware that there is a Jew around that won't bow to him. And he's furious, quite 
unexpectedly, actually, if you're just reading the book uninformed. Because he thinks that just punishing Mordecai won't be enough. And we close our text today with Haman's plan to wipe out all of the Jews in the empire. Overreaction much? Is this pettiness amped up to the highest level possible? Or could it be that it was actually Mordecai kind of being petty? Because he's not being asked to worship. He's just showing some respect. And maybe he's not just because he was forgotten after saving the king's life. What's happening here? Well, there's more to it than simply pettiness. And to find out, we have to go back a long way into the Old Testament. And even further and deeper into our memories of last week's sermon to find out what is happening here. So let's backtrack a little bit. When the people of Israel left Egypt at the Exodus, they were soon attacked from behind by the heathen evil nation of the Amalekites. God then, after giving them, uh, after helping them winning that battle, promises to completely erase the Amalekites from history. And he declares perpetual war against the Amalekites. In the book of Deuteronomy, for example, God commanded Israel to do its best to obliterate the Amalekites from existence. Later in the Old Testament, when the Benjaminite king of Israel, Saul, when he became king, God instructed him to annihilate the Amalekites. He had an opportunity to do that. God told him to spare no one. However, Saul disobeyed God's command by keeping some of their livestock, some of their people, and even sparing their king, whose name was Agag, probably to bargain a literal king's ransom with the Amalekites. He didn't want to destroy them. He wanted their gold. So because of this disobedience, Saul was severely punished. And because of this disobedience, the fate of the Jews was now at the hands of Haman the Agagite. So bowing to the historical enemy of his people and clan was too much for Mordecai the Jew. Yes, he could work for the welfare of the empire, but he would pay no respects to a God-hater, Jew-killer, Amalekite. We are called by God to work for the peace of our city, yes, but there is a line not to be crossed, and that is the line of bowing down to the enemies of our God. Mordecai does not get everything right, all the time, but he knows he cannot serve two masters. And unfortunately, since we're speaking of consequences of our actions, this will bring consequences not only to him, but to all of his people living under the boot of the Persians. His act of defiance is noble, 
but it comes with a price. As my friends at seminary and I constantly repeated to ourselves when, hypothetically speaking, we did very poorly in an exam because we started studying for it the day before, well, 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 if it isn't the consequences of my own actions. Well, 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 if it isn't the consequences, as we saw last week, of staying in Susa in the Persian Empire when you could have been living in Jerusalem. Had they gone back, none of this would have happened. So now when Mordecai does the right thing for a change, there will be more consequences. The pig shuts out of the dung heap. The Jewish horse is about to fall. And what can Mordecai do now? What can you do when you realize your choice of identifying with the people of God and not bowing to money, power, prestige, or the life of your dreams might bring you shame, financial loss, social isolation. Even worse, what can you do when this morning you realize what you have done, that you have done this, that you have bowed? way more times than you can recount. Is there any hope for me? If I'm too scared or too accommodated to dare to be a Mordecai? At this point, of course, our memories go back to someone else who was promised many things if only he did what Mordecai refused to do. All the kingdoms of the world and their glory. All these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me, said Satan, the ultimate Agagite, to Jesus, the sinless offspring of Eve. Will he bow? Be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve, Jesus answered to that offer. You see, any allegiance you might have in this world, whether to something good and noble or to something bad and wicked, must always be placed under your pledge to the kingdom of God's beloved Son, you shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only you shall serve. When you serve in the empire, you serve as you work for God. And if you can't say that about what you're doing, maybe it's time to quit. So today we're reminded of Jesus, who did the right thing, who refused to bow to the emperor of the empire of darkness. And what were the consequences of his perfect and righteous actions, you might ask? Dying on a cross, naked and in pain, so that his people wouldn't have to face the same fate. And you might ask, why would they have 
to face it to begin with. You know all too well. Because if it depended on our ability to always honor the God who created us and refuse to bow to Satan, to the world, and to our own sin, we would be darting into an ending even worse than falling off a horse. Yet, because we have a faithful Savior who perfectly did the will of His Father, who never transgressed the commands of the King of the universe, even if the recompense for that was death, because of that, we find in Him a Savior that stands between us and our final and ultimate annihilation. Because of Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf, because now He stands before the Father pleading for us and He gives us today an opportunity to be united with Him in the presence of God, we can live our lives in this world as insignificant and small as they may seem when they compare to the power of the empire marching against us. And even in that context, we can still be used by God to accomplish His purposes. Because again, the story of Esther and Mordecai so far, it has been a mixed bag of passive suffering under the empire, but also actively working for the empire, Sometimes for the good, sometimes for the bad. And that, my friends, is our story. This is what we do every day in our lives. Yet, as we know from this book, God will use those two people in the positions that they have right now to save the entirety of his people from extinction. So therefore, today, you can leave this place with that same hope. The hope that in God's loving providence and governing of all things for the good of those who love Him, you can know your labors are not in vain. You simply, you're simply asked to bend the knee to the good King. These events, says Karen Jobes, a commentator, show the inscrutable interplay between circumstances thrust upon us, sometimes unjustly, and those the result of our own behavior often flawed. God's providence marvelously moves through both in his own good time. Would you want to know all the consequences of your actions? This morning, we are reminded that destruction and ruin outside of God's promised land for His people are the inevitable and final result of our choices in this life. That's what's going to happen in the future. Yet, we also hear that out of God's love for His people, through the life, death, and resurrection of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, and in our union with Him through His Holy Spirit living in us, who bend the knee to Him, we can work 
to advance God's kingdom now. And hope for safety and salvation when he calls us to be with him then. On that day, you will see him face to face. He will embrace you with, your, with his holy, perfect, and eternal love and joy and say to you, to your new and glorified you, well, well, well. If it isn't right here, the consequences of my own actions. Let us pray. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hidden, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit so that we may live, love you perfectly, and worthily magnify your holy name. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray and together we say, Amen.